What does God supply to his people to handle hardship and pain? Like what, what's God's remedy? What's his offer as we deal with hardship and pain? What's his solution to the challenges that you and I face in life? Because contrary to what you may have heard, Jesus is not a genie, right? It's not just that we rub the lamp and get the wishes that we want. And following Jesus, loving Jesus, knowing Jesus is not a guarantee that the pain will immediately go away. You know that? Experience that? And Jesus doesn't offer an escape hatch where we can just leave it all behind. And he doesn't offer us immediate emotional bliss, nor does he guarantee a life of personal ease and safety. In fact, in many ways, it's quite the opposite. If you read some of these passages, this is John 16, 33. I think there's one before this, is there not? Yeah, John 16, 2. Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You're like, what in the world? Like People killing disciples of Jesus thinking they're offering service service to God. He's talking about killing. And again, and then in verse 20, Jesus talks in the same chapter about the disciples weeping and lamenting. So the the Christian life, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer here tonight, but the Christian life, my friends, is a cross-shaped life. And in our prosperity, which let's face it, in the world's standard, we're rich. Whether you may be the poorest person in the room here today, we're rich in the world. And in our prosperity and in our privilege, especially as Americans, we must never forget that we are following a suffering servant. And the one that we have worshipped here tonight is a crucified king. And again, the next slide, at the end of John 16, John 16, 33, Jesus did say, in this world, you will have tribulation. So it's important that we reframe our expectations accordingly, that God does not necessarily promise us in this life easy street. His promise is not necessarily health and wealth and prosperity, this side of glory. But in light of all of that, you also need to know that God does not promise to leave us alone. He hasn't left us empty-handed. He hasn't left us just to just barely make it. So that's the question that I asked at the beginning. What does then God supply to his people for us to be able to handle walking through a world that will give us tribulation? What does God supply to his people to deal with the inevitable hardship and pain and difficulty that will come if you choose to follow him? Well, I would say what he gives in general, the Bible says, is more than enough. God gives you more than enough. He gives us more than enough. We're not lacking in this. But if you want to get real specific, John 16, he talks about two things that he gives. Two things that God gives his people 
to face the challenges that are to come. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 16. Let me remind you where this conversation fits on the, on the Jesus timeline. This conversation we're going to read tonight, John 16, it takes place, kind of set within the context of John 13 through 17, the series we've been in for the last couple months. It all takes place on the night of the Last Supper. So if you kind of see how this night goes on, if you know maybe some of the history or the timeline of the Last Supper, right on the heels of this conversation, so right after Jesus shares these words to his disciples, all hell is about ready to break loose. And I mean that literally. It is though on this night, they, they are walking up to the, the edge of the cliff and they're looking over what's going to be some of the most difficult times that they would face. Here's what's about to unroll. In a matter of hours from these words being spoken, Jesus will be betrayed by his close friend. He will be denied by others. Jesus will be arrested and beaten and put on trial. And this once tight-knit group of friends and disciples are left to fend for themselves as they scatter because their leader is gone. Jesus, again, will be brutally beaten, horrifically executed, and then his lifeless body will be sealed into a tomb under watch guard. And the disciples will end up really running for their lives and hiding behind locked doors because they're afraid that the same thing is going to happen to them too. And their whole world gets flipped upside down. Whether they know it or not, these disciples are about ready to enter the dark night of their soul. So in this moment, in this room, there's this lingering conversation between Jesus and his followers. What does he offer them? What does he say to them? How do you prepare someone for stuff that's that difficult and that hard? I just want you to notice that Jesus doesn't bypass it. Jesus doesn't stop it. He knows what's to come, but he doesn't stop it. He doesn't say, hey, guys, let's get on a boat and get out of here. This is going to be really hard. Can we just, let's just leave. Now, if we go quickly and quietly, they'll ne- they won't catch us. He doesn't eliminate the problems. He doesn't bypass the pain. He says all these painful events are in store, and in the midst of that, he offers them two main gifts, some promises. But you hear Jesus' heart there's a tenderness to the way he speaks. I think I have this here. Yeah, verse one. He keeps saying, I've said these things to you. He tells them why, why he's telling them these things. I, I said these things to you to keep you from falling away. He says, I have said these things to you, verse four, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And at the end of the chapter, kind of a bookend, verse one to verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So Jesus is concerned about his friends falling away and giving up. And he's concerned about his friends being caught off guard when the rug gets yanked out from underneath them. And Jesus is concerned about their anxiety. And he wants them to have peace. And so he says, that's why I'm telling you this now. So here's what he says. Let me read this. These, These passages are a little lengthy, so bear with me. We want to hear what Jesus has to say to his followers right before this whole thing just crashes and burns. 
He says, I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in the midst of coming hardship and pain and disorientation and upheaval, Jesus offers two things. First thing he offers The first thing he offers is the help of the Holy Spirit. The help of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knows that some of their disorientation is around the fact that he's leaving. And they don't know what's about to transpire. They don't know about the betrayal or the arrest or the crucifixion. They don't know about resurrection. They don't know about ascension. They don't know about the details or the order of it. But Jesus has been telling them, it's time for me to go back to the Father. He, he tells them, you're not going to see me anymore. And they can't compute all of this. They couldn't comprehend it. Because for the last three years, they had done everything with Jesus. Right? They walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, slept around in the same place where Jesus was, witnessed miracles, participated in miracles, cast out demons, healed people, saw all sorts of amazing things for three years together. They were together. If they had a problem, this again, you can think, this would be so cool. If they had a problem, it would be, hey, Jesus, and they could reach over and just tug on his sleeve. Hey, Jesus, if they had a question, they could talk to him. Hey, Jesus, and he's just right there. And yes, there are times that he left to go be away with the Father. Father, but he came back and they could talk and be together again. But to fulfill the plan of God and to carry out the, the kingdom agenda, he had to go. He had to die. He had to leave. He had to be crucified and he had to be raised again and he had to go back to the Father. And their world is completely changing. Like we talk about how disorienting our life is right now as things have changed. Like their world was completely disordered. And here's what Jesus says, verse 7. He goes, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. This is your advantage. And I love, there's a scholar who put it this way. Oh, I don't think I have that slide. Sorry, that's my fault. One scholar said that, another way of translating that is that the best thing that could ever happen to you is for me to go away. That's what Jesus says to them. The best thing that could ever happen is for Jesus to leave. That's what he's saying. This is your, to your advantage. 
Because he says, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so, my friends, I just want to encourage you in the midst of life's challenges, in the midst of difficulty, whatever it may be for you or for us or for your family or for your friendships or for your workplace, whatever situation you may find yourself in, Jesus has done everything necessary to give you the help of the Holy Spirit. Here's what you have. Again, I could list off 15 things that we don't have. Here's one thing you do have. You have the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your help. How do we face challenges and tragedies? How do we do this difficult thing? Life on planet Earth, following Jesus trying to be a Christian, a Christ follower? How do we be human right now and navigate the landmines that are landmines on landmines on landmines, it feels like? How do we do that? Jesus says, it's better that I go away because if I go away, I can send the Spirit. In verse 7, again, you can go to the next slide now. Verse 7, the Holy Spirit's called the helper. It's the Greek word parakletos. You could translate that a variety of ways. The helper, the advocate, the supporter, the teacher, the interpreter, the interceder, the representative, the witness, the counselor. Para means alongside of. Kletos means to call. It's as though you have someone walking alongside you, calling alongside you, urging you on, helping you, explaining to you, advocating for you, teaching you. You have the one who comes alongside you, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows and deeply understands that our only hope to weather life as human beings on planet Earth is through the help of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit help us? Again, uh, there are a variety of places you can go throughout the Bible to find different explanations about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is just one of them. You can look at um, the book of Acts that talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. You can look at Paul's letters that talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I take something here. Jesus, again, knowing the setting. It's the upper room. It's the last supper. He's about ready to die. He's about ready to go through all that he's going to go through. He knows this is his last extended season with these people. And he looks them in the eye. And this is what he chooses to highlight about the Holy Spirit. He says, it's your advantage that I go away. It's the best thing that could ever happen to you. If I go, I'll send the helper, and here's what's going to happen when the, when the helper comes. In this passage, again, there's more that could be said about the Holy Spirit, but three things he says about the Spirit, that the Spirit brings witness about Jesus, the Spirit brings conviction, and the Spirit brings glory. And I'll be honest with you, as someone who's read a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, these three things don't get talked a lot about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. First, the witness about Jesus. Go to the next slide. John 15, 26, or right before this little section happens, this is what Jesus says. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit, the helper, testifies about Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is committed to the exaltation, the highlighting, the pointing to Jesus Christ as Lord. If anyone will ever come to understand in their soul that Jesus is Messiah and Lord, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If anyone can testify to Jesus and point to Jesus and talk about Jesus and love Jesus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This word bear witness or testify, it's the Greek word martyreo. It's where we get our word martyr from. And the Holy Spirit has been given to point to and magnify the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the Spirit's work. And for the last 2,000 years, men and women of faith have literally gone to their death declaring that Jesus is Lord. And they stake their life on that truth. That's the work of the Spirit. If you have come to experience the life and the grace of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit's testifying work that points to Jesus and says, follow him, love him, believe him, trust him. So where there is witness about Jesus, that's the helper at work. Also, the Spirit comes giving conviction. Next slide. Oh yeah, you got it right here. John 16, 8. And when he comes, again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he clarifies concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the work of conviction. And I love how Old Testament scholar Dale Bruner, he summarizes this passage this way. I think it's the next slide, yeah. He says, the Spirit shows the world that it is wrong about what is wrong. The Spirit shows the world that it is wrong about what's right. And the Spirit shows the world that it is wrong about who wins. I love that description. Because again, this is not about us becoming enemies with people, but this again, this conversation around the world is that there's a system in rebellion against God that wants humanity to live apart from God. And we live in a world system that every day of our life bombards us with messaging about what is wrong, about what is right, and about who wins. And the Holy Spirit has come to set the record straight about what is really wrong, what is right, and about who wins and the challenge is is in the world system when it comes to what is wrong we tend to point everywhere else but us what's wrong in the world he's wrong she they are and we don't even look inside of ourselves and see there's this thing called sin and when it comes to what is right We turn the finger around and we point it within to think that somehow within ourselves we will discover what is right. And the Spirit comes to show that the world is wrong about what's wrong. And is wrong about what's right and is wrong about who wins. And again, brings us back to an understanding of our rebellion from God, our need for Jesus, and the fact that at the end of it all, the ruler of this world has been defeated through the victorious work of Jesus on the cross. And the Spirit has been given 
to convict, to point out the broken ways that we try to do this life. The Spirit brings witness, brings conviction, and then brings glory. The Spirit has come to give glory to Jesus. Next verse, Jesus says, He will glorify me. He will take what is mine, declare it to you. And there's this father-son-spirit dance that we get invited into, that the Spirit glorifies Jesus and takes what belongs to the Father, has been given to Jesus, and Jesus shares that with us by the Spirit. But Jesus is glorified as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. So Jesus does not promise his followers that he's going to somehow take them out of this world. In fact, in 17, we'll read, he says, actually, I pray that you don't take them out of this world. That's not his heart for his people, is to be removed from the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one in the midst of our faithful presence here, living out the life of the kingdom now. Jesus does not promise an end to our problems and pain, though I wish that were the case, because I'm a wimp. I'd rather not have difficulty. I prefer ease. That's not Jesus' promise. Jesus says, I will offer you my spirit. I will offer you the very personal presence of God who will come and dwell inside of you so that every step along the way, no matter what you face, and it will be difficult no matter what you face, you will be able to know Jesus more, speak of Jesus, give glory to Jesus, and have a sense about what is actually going on in this world. You have a helper in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' gift to you. I'm not sure if you've ever read A.W. Tozer before. He has a famous quote that says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. How well do we know our helper? Because our hope as a church is not in our cleverness. And our hope is not in our oration or our clever argumentation or our ability to do excellent things when we gather together. Our hope is not in our music as amazing as our music is. Our hope is not in me pulling off a good sermon or our doctrine or our activism or our ability to help sex trafficking, our hope to live the Jesus life for the sake of the kingdom before he comes is the help of the Holy Spirit. We are a spirit-dependent people. And we are in need of the helper's help. And that should be good news to us. That God uses weak things and foolish things and things that are not in the eyes of the world to accomplish his kingdom ends. You have the help of the Holy Spirit. Second thing. like What does Jesus give these people right before they go off the cliff? He says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit and it's going to be better than if I stayed. It's the best thing that could ever happen to 
to you. The best thing that could ever happen. He offers the help of the Holy Spirit, and he offers the hope of the Father's plan. So I'm going to read the, the, the last half of this section. Again, it's, it's a chunk. Here we go. Verse 16. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Just so you know, we're all in good company here. If you're like, what is he, what is he talking about? Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask for the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So, again, Jesus is dropping all this wisdom on them, and they immediately, the disciples, they admittedly say, I don't don't understand it. I don't get it. They're scratching their head. A little while, and you will see. Like, it's like Yoda. See me. Not you will. Right? It's like, what, what does he mean? What does he say? A little while this, a little while that. They say, I don't get it. And then she's like, okay, here's what I mean. And verse 20, he summarizes. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to weep and lament, and the, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, I realize that that doesn't sound like helpful. That doesn't sound like good news. This was supposed to be hope. It's like there's going to be a lot of crying, weeping, lamenting, lots of sorrow, and the world system that I've come to free you from will rejoice. Like, how is that helpful? They're going to get bad, worse, and then really worse. Here's what I think, though. At least Jesus is offering them a plan. At least Jesus is offering them the perspective of the Father. Now, that may seem like little consolation to you. Because when things fall apart, and you're in the midst of it, it's difficult. But here's my contention. The only thing that is worse than pain and suffering is random pain and suffering. Right? The only, pain and suffering is hard. But the only thing worse than going through, like just getting bludgeoned and beaten, and it's like, what is happening? The only thing worse than pain and suffering is random pain and suffering. It's one thing to weep and lament for no rhyme or reason when it fits into a framework of just random chance, chance senseless chance that drives someone deeper into despair. 
random chance just happening about us. And I would say that most worldviews fall into that category of randomness. And so in this moment, the disciples, they don't know what all is to come, and they have no ability to fit it together into a coherent whole. But this is the good news of Jesus' intervention in this story, that they may not know all that is to happen, but he does. And he says, yeah, difficulty, lamenting, weeping, sorrow, pain, rejoicing by the world. But he does say, and he even uses this phrase, a little while. A little while and a little while. And the very fact that Jesus can say, this is what's going to happen, and this is where it's going to end, in a little while here, in a little while there, the only way he can say that is if there is a plan, and if he knows it. And Jesus offers them the plan of the Father in the midst of their pain. It's his perspective. And the first thing when we experience pain is for us to say, what's happening? It's chaos. God, where are you? God, what's happening? And that's fine for you to feel that way. But the reminder of Jesus to his disciples is this is a part of the Father's plan. It may not be easy now. In fact, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be one of the most difficult things you ever do and ever face and ever lived through. As Christians, as those who are a part of our reality community, hopefully you have become more and more familiar. We can go to the next slide. With the way this thing plays out. There is the basic Christian storyline. There is the redemptive arc of human history that begins with creation, that moves through the fall of sin in the world, but then goes to redemption and restoration. It is not a storyline of creation, fall, mass chaos, and sprinkled in randomness. And for the disciples, this is their little mini storyline where they were called by Jesus to experience crucifixion and resurrection and restoration. And my reminder just to you tonight is that it is not random senselessness. The Father has a plan. Here's what Jesus says. He goes, well, folks, guys, It's a lot like childbirth. (laughs) It's a lot like childbirth. And anyone who's had a baby in the room goes, oh, yeah, childbirth. Jesus says, this is the best way I can describe it to you. It's like childbirth. And not just any childbirth, but full-on ancient, no C-section, no epidural, you may die doing this childbirth. And when a person gives birth, her hour has come. Just curious, who here has given birth in the room? Maybe I should let you come up and talk about this. Let's be honest. The brutal part of giving birth isn't just the time when your hour comes. It's the whole thing. The whole nine-month process, you gain dozens of pounds. Your clothes no longer fit. Your feet swell up. 
some women vomit regularly. We call it morning sickness because that sounds nice. The baby inside you starts growing and moving and keeping you up at night because it moves around. And that's all before the hour has come. And then once the hour has come, it's game on and there's contractions and there's pushing and even if you do get the epidural, have you seen the size of the needle that they used to administer the epidural? It's like a nuclear warhead. It's crazy. When I saw them pull that out, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I need help watching you put that in her back. So Jesus talks about this birthing process. But when a mother gives birth, there's joy. And there's the shift that happens from intense pain, right? Screaming, ah, to baby. And yes, some pregnancies and deliveries are harder than others. But that transition, this is what Jesus is talking about, is profound and remarkable. It's the whole point of his analogy here is that the baby does come and is delivered. Does the pain automatically stop when the baby comes? Nope. That's why it takes a while to walk again. And that's the point of the analogy. It's not that there's no more pain. It's just that the joy of the newborn baby overshadows the pain. And the pain of childbirth is so outlandish. The small miracle is that people actually sign up to do it more than once. And the reason why is because of the joy that comes at the end. That's what drives the delivering mother. There will be a baby. And it doesn't mean the pain goes away, but allows you to deal with the pain. And that's what Jesus says. He doesn't say you're never going to have to go through this. No, it's actually going to be really painful and really hard. And yet, there's joy in it. And this is going somewhere. And it's not randomness. And it's not senseless. It's not pointless. It won't go on forever this way. And he says, there will be this day. (laughs) And there'll be a day. Can we go back to the very end of that passage? Yeah, there. Verse 23. There's going to be a day when you will ask nothing of me. (laughs) There will be a day when he comes back and he puts the world to right. There'll be a day when sin is removed, death forever defeated, Kingdom of heaven joined together with earth. New heavens and new earth. There will be a day when every tear is wiped away. There will be a day when we won't be like, well, what about, I've heard people say, when I see God someday, I'm going to give him one, I'm going to tell him something. I'm going to tell him, why about this? What about that? How about this? How about that? There'll be a day when you'll be like, oh. There'll be a day of face to face. There'll be a day when the world is put to right. There'll be a day when evil forever defeated and vanquished. There'll be a day when tears are wiped away. There'll be a day when depression and mental health will be forever dealt with. There'll be a day when we won't have to fight sex trafficking. 
There'll be a day when you don't have to fight for justice. But that day has not yet come. And here's what Jesus says. Here's what I got for you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And I want you to have hope that there's a plan to this. And this is going somewhere. And there will be joy at the end. The baby's coming. So, what do we do then? In the in-between. In the labor pangs. Verse 23, right here. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. There is the day coming when he returns and puts the world to right. But until then, ask. That's the call. I've given you the Spirit, the Helper. I've given you the hope of the Father's plan. And so until then, ask and keep asking. We're to use other places in Jesus' teaching. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. And to be honest, my pastoral desire at times when I read verses like this is to want to like clarify it and maybe soft pedal it. Because I know sometimes these verses have been abused to be like, really? He just wants me. I can ask for anything that I want to and he's going to make... Yeah, right, that can get abused. But I can also then talk us down to say, well, then don't really ask for anything because it may not happen and you don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to do that. This is what Jesus says in the midst of all that you're going to go through. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. You have the plan of the Father. And in between, I want you to ask. Ask. You have a Father in heaven that you can approach. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. So much that he sent the Son to give you the Spirit. You have a Father in heaven that you can call Abba. So call on him. Cry out to him. Ask of him. No shame. No cowardice. No ah shucks hesitation. Climb into the lap of Daddy in the name and the authority of Jesus to the power of the Spirit and begin to ask. Because he wants to talk to you. He loves your voice. And he wants you to ask him for joy to be full. And that sounds like a better option in the midst of our pain and disorientation. There is a plan. There is perspective. There is pain overcoming joy. There is a helper in the spirit. Your invitation is to ask. to ask in light of your hope and help what may you need to ask God for tonight let's pray Lord I I share your word to our community tonight believing that we are in this story We're in the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, and yet full restoration has not yet come. We're near the the tail end of this thing, God, but it's not as it will be one day. 
And God, this year, these last two years, continue to be hard in so many ways. God, we need your help. God, we don't want to just pull off religious things week in and week out, devoid of the power and presence of your Spirit. We want to join you in what you're doing. We want to know you. We want to experience your love and grace. We need you, God. There, there are people in this room, in this community, hurting. Challenges with family, marriages, not where they ought to be or where we would want them to be. Physical pain, disease, financial challenge, not to mention the heartache of this city. We don't know how to handle those who are homeless among us. We're often blind to those being trafficked. God, even the church community ripped apart over masks and vaccines. We need your help, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Help us. And may we have audacity to ask you, God, to not pull punches, to not hold back. But to know that you are with us and that you care and that you listen and you're on the move, even in the places that we can't yet see. Lord, help us from losing heart in the midst of the pregnancy, even in the midst of the pushing. We lean into the promise that there is joy to come. And even though we don't see it in full, Father, we trust your plan. Help us trust you more. So Lord, tonight we offer all this to you. And we ask for your help as you meet us here because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.